because essentially what we're producing is a tiny, tiny planet between the tip of two diamonds. You're listening to The Cosmic Cast. Hi everyone, welcome back to The Cosmic Cast. Today we have the perfectly poached John Purney Fisher. Hello. The slightly scrambled Elliot Carter. Hello. And myself, Marissa Lowe, the runny yolk. And we have a very special guest today. We have Dr. Eleanor Jennings from the University of Birkbeck. Hi. How are you doing, Ellie? Hi, I'm great, thanks. Well, uh, after that fantastic uh, intro, it's got me thinking about eggs. What's your favourite type of egg? <laughs> I mean, personally, I'm a bit of a poached egg fan. I enjoy a poached egg, egg yeah. but I have never successfully made one. Yeah, it's, they're tricky. I only like them they're if someone tricky. else is making it for me. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The man at Weatherspoons can do a good job. Apparently meant to use very fresh ones. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but anyway, so uh, you are an experimental petrologist. I am. So, and you you just started really at, at Birkbeck College. How long have you been there for now? So, I've been at Birkbeck since January last year. It's time that's gone by very, very quickly. I yeah, still I'll feel bet. like I've only just started. It's uh, a lot to learn. So, this is uh, your first lectureship post. Yeah. So you've come straight from a postdoc into a so, lectureship. How have you yeah, found this that? This is my first teaching post. So, um, I mean, I'm enjoying it a lot. Something that I'm really happy about is before you take on a job like this, you don't really know what it's going to feel mm. like to teach. You know, you've been involved in teaching, you've kind of done tutorials, you've taught small groups of people, but you really don't know what it actually feels like to be a lecturer, to stand in front of a room and to teach. And I was nervous before my first lecture. I thought, what if I've made a huge mistake? What if I hate this? What if this is, this is my job now? What if it's really unpleasant? You know, you go into this job without that kind of experience. And I just remember feeling so relieved on the bus home on the first day. And I thought, yes, that was so fun. I really enjoyed it. It was incredibly rewarding. And thank God it turns out now that I've taken on the job already that I actually enjoy being a lecturer. So I I enjoy teaching a lot more than I... I thought I would enjoy it, but I really like teaching. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess it's an interesting point, really. I guess postdocs don't really get too much opportunity to practice teaching Mm. skills. Which is a shame, I I think. And actually, if you are a postdoc and you're interested in following this kind of career path, if teaching opportunities come to you, you should take them because, you know, people ask about those things in job interviews. And it's something we're all in the same boat. No one has a good answer because no one has that much teaching experience. But the more experience you have, the more you know if you're making the right career choice, because it will be a big part of your life in the future. And the more you actually have things to talk about in your in your job interview when they're asking about teaching experience. So any opportunity that comes up, really, really do go for it. It's I guess it's worth mentioning for the, the listeners that are perhaps not too familiar that Birkbeck is actually a, a night college. Mm. So I guess all your teaching has been in the evening so far? Yeah, so I teach um, from 6 to 9 p.m., which is, is quite, it can be quite challenging. It's important not to come into work too early, and it's mm. important to have dinner before you start teaching, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> which I have learned the hard way. And uh, yeah. I'm quite prone to a sneaky McDonald's on the way home Uh. on a Wednesday night, (laughs) 10 p.m. when I finally get there. Yeah, so we teach in the evenings. Uh, So most of our students have jobs during the day, and some of them have sort of caring responsibilities or other reasons, Um, and some of them maybe have disabilities. So we we also uh, teach a lot of distance learners, Mm -hmm. learners in other countries, learners who are learning from home. Um, So about 60% of our students come into their lectures. Uh, It's it's. It's quite different experience. You know, the, the students tend to be older. They tend to, yeah, maybe they're going through a career change. Maybe they, a lot of them already have a degree. Some of them have degrees in art subjects and they're trying to change their career. Some of them just need a degree to, to make some kind of career progression. Some of them are doing it for fun. Some are retired. Some are actually just out of school and they just prefer learning in the evenings. So it's a, it's a bit of a different atmosphere. It's not that different. You know, ultimately everyone's still learning about geology. Um, the style, the content of our lectures is pretty similar to in 
in other places. Um, students, I've, I find that older students, they're very fun to teach. They tend to be more interactive. They're much more willing to put up their hand and to interrupt and to have some kind of dialogue with the lecturer when mm. they want to know more about something. So it takes some getting used to being interrupting, being interrupted when you're sort of having a stream of thought and you're trying to teach. But actually, it's, it's much more fun. And I think it's a much more engaging style of teaching. So I enjoy that a lot. On the, on the flip side, you know, some of those students, they can be very tired when they turn up. They yeah. might have been at work all day. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes they miss their deadlines because they've had, they've had work commitments, they've had family commitments. So you also have to, be, you have to be a bit more understanding. You have to be a bit kinder to them sometimes. You, know, you have to realise that their lives are a bit more difficult than those of some other students, in, not in every circumstance, but sometimes. So what does a typical working day look like? like for you then do you normally do research during the day and then yeah. teaching in the evening um i find it easier to have one day doing one kind of thing so maybe on a teaching day i like to spend the morning i everyone in Birkbeck arrives at work quite late we're not morning people we do not employ morning people um <laughs> so i probably get into work sometime between 10 and 10 30 which is shocking elsewhere but <laughs> whatever <laughs> um yeah, on a teaching day, I like to prepare teaching materials, have a look through them, maybe write up some lecture notes for the future, maybe have a think about exams, maybe try and update some of the, the literature, look at some papers. So I try and engage on teaching in those days. I think during term time, it can feel very difficult to stay on top of research. You can feel very busy, but I think it's good to at least dedicate one day per week where you say, this is a pure research day, and this is where I'm going to really be in that right headspace where I can read papers and be really engaged on a particular topic. Yeah, it is really difficult to sort of flip and flop between different, I mean, between different yeah. papers, it's quite challenging. Really, yeah, I find. absolutely. You, need, you know, to do research, you really have to be in that right headspace. You have to be yeah. really fully engaged in the topic you're doing. You can't skim through a paper and, and hope to get Absorb. something deeper from it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I find that difficult. You know, I think a lot of academics don't get all that much research done during term time. It's just yeah. a case of having things tick over. And then when it's the summer, that's when you can get a bit more stuck in. But it's it's... The time constraints are something that I'm still struggling with, and I feel that I haven't quite mastered this balance yet. So I'm hoping that I'll become more productive when I, I finally get a handle on, you know, all of the additional responsibilities that I now have in my job. Yeah, well, I imagine year on year, if you're doing the same sorts of modules, the same lectures every year, it'll get a bit easier. Yeah, I hope so, yeah. Um, so you did your PhD in Cambridge, is that mm -hmm. right? And then you, did you also do a postdoc in Cambridge as well, or...? No, so actually I'm going to start my career path one year before I okay. started my PhD because after I finished my undergraduate, so that was in Bristol. Oh, really? I, um, in Bristol? Ah. Everyone's been oh, through yes. Bristol at some time. Well, I'm from <laughs> Bristol, so I'm, oh, right. I'm very biased. Oh, it's a brilliant city. <laughs> it's a brilliant city, and I really, really enjoyed being a student there, I have to say. Um, but actually, when I finished my, uh, my undergraduate, I wasn't sure about doing a PhD, and I hadn't committed myself. I hadn't really applied for anything and actually I stayed behind for over a year and I worked as a lab technician there in the experimental petrology labs so in Bristol they have a lot of experimental facilities mm -hmm. they have quite a big group and and this was a really brilliant experience because I I learned a lot about all the different techniques they were using I developed a lot of practical skills I was helping other people with their experiments but also I went I went to synchrotron trips I helped people on their beam time it was a very fun year and it meant that, you know, it really helped to clarify for me that I did want to follow a research path. So I'd say if you're not sure about going for a PhD, I, I really thought there was no harm in taking this extra year out. It also made my interviews incredibly easy. I had things to talk about. Mm -hmm. I had reasons, you know, firm reasons I really knew that I wanted to do a PhD. And I had these practical lab skills that I could already sell as, you know, something that I could do. Mm -hmm. So 
I, re I really started my research career with a year and a half of being a lab technician and I loved it. That's cool. Um, mm -hmm. So then I moved to Cambridge. I did a PhD looking at igneous petrology of large igneous provinces. And specifically, I was looking at the Paranaya Tendeka province and thinking about uh, the conditions that, um, you know, the melting conditions that were happening in the plume, the chemistry of the mantle plume that formed that. You know, the, that large igneous province is formed by the impact of a mantle plume starting head. It produced a lot of flood basalts and some other some other igneous materials. So these are areas, I guess, for people who might not be too familiar, uh, like Iceland and Hawaii, basically. These are kind of large, oh, right, yeah. Yeah, large so areas current of basaltic magnetism. Plumes that are well known, yeah, would yeah. be things like ocean islands, like Hawaii and, yeah, Hawaii and Iceland and Tristan and Samoa. There are plenty of them out there. But actually, when mantle plumes first arrive at the Earth's surface, they're probably much larger and much hotter than that plume tail that's forming those islands. Uh, so we get things called continental flood basalts. So they're huge, huge volumes of basalt. They're actually associated with extinction events. You know, most major extinction events that have happened on Earth have been associated with flood basalt eruptions. Even the extinction of the dinosaurs is a bit controversial because, you know, there was the simultaneous impact of a, a meteorite that people think caused that extinction, but also on the other side of the planet. So that was in Mexico. But then in India, we have the Deccan Traps, which is a huge outpouring of basalt that has also been implicated for, you know, causing the end Cretaceous extinction. Yeah, it's still very argued. Mm. It's still very argued, and particularly for some of the more sort of unsure extinction events. Like it was some in the eight year scene, maybe, I think. It's still very much argued whether it's impact-related yeah. or... And the thing is, a lot of impact craters on Earth have been lost. Mm. But it looks as though... I mean, some people... I, I think this is maybe taking it too far, but there is even some controversy about whether impact events are related to large igneous province events. Who knows? But certainly, large igneous provinces, there's a lot of volcanic gas coming out. It's a huge volume of magma. It's nothing like what we're seeing today. And people do think these are involved with extinctions. Okay, so that's a side point. <laughs> that was yeah. a side point. But, you know, I was Does looking at... Does it have a big effect on, like, the global climate? Yeah, yeah, they think it's through, exactly, through a climate-driven mechanism. And yeah, sulfur and all that being ejected. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I was interested in uh, also whether we can see evidence for previous mantle you know mantle recycling in in that mantle source so whether we can see for example if you'd had an ancient subducted plate you know happening at subduction zones if that ends up being sampled by a mantle plume from the lower mantle and if that tells us something about whole mantle cycling of these kind of materials over long times so that was a sort of geochemistry focused phd there was a lot of modeling thermodynamic modeling imperial modeling making measurements analytical work so for my postdoc, I moved to um, the Bayerisches Geo Institute. So that's in Germany. It's the University of Bayreuth. And it's a, a research institute that's very much focused on experimental petrology and some other things. Um, so I had access to all sorts of equipment there, doing experiments at different conditions, doing different analytical work. It's a great place to work. Um, there's a lot of research money in Germany. So I would recommend it's a good place to go for a postdoc. Um, and then from that, so I worked there for a little over two years, and then I finally moved to Birkbeck, which is where I am now. And um, I have my fingers in a lot of pots, I feel, at the moment. Um, I collaborate with a lot of people. I have some different projects on the go, and I think this is a really... Th having this sort of broader set of interests uh, has served me well, and I think it's, yeah, it's kind of fun. So it sounds like you had quite a straightforward path from PhD to a lectureship now. So was your postdoc only a year? No, it was, it was two years and two months. Right. But I, I did have a quite straightforward path, so I only did a single postdoc. So I feel very fortunate about this. And when I was doing my PhD, 
people constantly warned me, oh, you know, academic careers, it's, it's very difficult. There are very few jobs. Most people will not not get there. You know, don't get your hopes up too much. Think about other things. And it, this kind of attitude got me down sometimes. And I would like to tell students now, actually, it doesn't always have to be this way. I have, I know plenty of people who've who've managed to get academic jobs, who are enjoying themselves. It's not that awful. So, you know, don't give up hope. I had quite a straightforward path. I've had a lot of luck and I've had some good mentors and I've had people who've been looking out for me. But, you know, other people have those things too. So there's no reason why this kind of career can't work out for you. It can be a bit brutal. There are also, yeah, I mean, the job market isn't that easy, but it's not the end of the world. Don't don't give up before you've even tried. If this is the kind of job you want to do, then find some good mentors, talk to people about it. it there's no reason why it shouldn't work out. Yeah. yeah, I mean, being a PhD student now, a lot of what I hear is, oh, it's so competitive, you're going to need to do X, Y, Z in order to put yourself on a good, in good standing to get a permanent job. Mm. Um, I don't know what it's like for you, Elliot, but yeah, I just hear yeah, a lot about how competitive it is. Yeah, and that a lot of anxiety. I mean, it, it is competitive, and that attitude did put me off, but it really, it turned out in the end, it really wasn't that bad. Yeah. I mean, some advice that I would have is I, I've switched fields a bit. Mm-hmm. And um, so from going from this surface igneous geochemistry through to this sort of planetary, deep planetary experimental approach. And this has served me very well. Mm-hmm. I think especially if you're going to work in a smaller department, having a wider range of expertise and research interests is something that that can work well for you. So I think don't shy, don't feel shy about switching fields. You know, if you're getting to the end of your PhD, you don't have to do a postdoc in the exact same topic. You know, you have some transferable skills there. So you should feel confident if someone gives you the opportunity, you can feel confident and switch fields a bit. I think that's not something that I would discourage. I, that for me, that worked out quite well. I, I attribute my easy career path partly to having made these kind of changes as I went. Yeah, no, I, th- I th- yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I think it's really good to sort of, yeah, have a wide knowledge of stuff and I think it's I think a lot of people think that whatever you do at your PhD you've got to then carry on for the rest of your career to do and I think I I think it's really good to go out there and you know get as much experience in different fields and different analytical techniques and stuff like that I mean there are there are interesting problems everywhere there's interesting science there are interesting questions everywhere you just have to either meet people who will direct you towards those or at some point you have the experience to start to develop those for yourself but there's interesting stuff everywhere you know don't don't think that what you're doing is the only important topic because it's it's not and it's not the only interesting topic it's not the only thing that can grab you and it's not the only thing that you can become an expert in you know when you're a postdoc the experience you have from your phd is basically an experience in being able to learn things quickly Mm -hmm. assimilate a lot of information learn new skills so when you're a postdoc you can apply that to something new i i switched fields completely and for about Half a year, I found it very difficult. People were talking about people and papers and techniques that I wasn't really very familiar with. But you learn this stuff quickly, and yeah. by the end, you know, this was my field now, and it was fine. Yeah. yeah. It, was, it was great to have the opportunity to do that. Yeah. You know, not everyone will let you. I mean, that's yeah, basically my experience as well, really, going from terrestrial PhD to a planetary mm. postdoc. It was, as you say, it's like a, a few months of not really knowing, and then you seem to get into the swing of it, really. Yeah. Um, so what are your main research focuses at the moment? Okay, so I have quite a, a broad set of research interests. Um, so I started off being, I started off from a, an earth science and a geology point of view. So originally my research was looking at, uh, I guess my interests really are in, in anything to do with magma, but maybe more specifically the generation of magma in the mantle, what the, what the chemistry of that magma can tell us about processes that have been happening in the mantle, melting processes, 
recycling processes, ha processes that happen in the crust, you know, the way the magma changes its chemistry, fractionates, contaminates, you know, how something that happens very deep down in the earth ends up relating to something that comes out on the surface of the earth. So that's kind of my background. Um, I then broadened a little bit into asking questions more about sort of whole planetary geochemistry, which again is actually a magmatic process in a way. You could say, well, in the beginning we had phases where the Earth was partially molten, and how can we interpret processes that happened then, you know, metal segregated from that, that magma, and it left a geochemical imprint on that magma, so how can we now look at the chemistry of the Earth and say something about the ways in which it formed? Um, so. These research interests are pretty broad, and there's no reason that they are constrained just to the Earth. I mean, the Earth is just a planet. It's like any other planet. We just know more about it. So we can base a lot of our knowledge on processes that happen here. But I'm starting to get more interested now in, in looking at other planets, in looking at igneous materials that we have on the surfaces of other planets, and how we can interpret their chemistry, um, using the sort of frameworks that we're using on Earth, but maybe going into systems which are less well constrained, where we don't quite know about the processes that happened Sorry, this was a very sort of broad and, and rambling answer, I guess, but I, I, I can be interested in anything that's encompassed by pretty much the chemistry of magmas. Yeah, yeah. So processes like planetary differentiation, mm -hmm. where a planet's starting off molten and splitting off into different layers, but also magma creation, magma ascent, and all that. Absolutely. Yeah, if yeah. they're universal processes, it makes sense to take Earth as a nice test case and then start applying it in other yeah. places. So I've started now working on some samples that come, some shergatite samples. So these are meteorites that we think come from Mars. And I've also started working on some lunar basalt samples. And so the idea behind working on these is pretty much we have the expertise to know how we would interpret these in quite a lot of detail in the Earth. And actually, there's a lot of scope out there for taking these materials from other planets and really starting to think more carefully about what those materials mean in terms of the interior of those planets, You know how those materials can, can tell us more about the big picture of what's going on. So I'm sort of returning to my roots a bit in moving back to more the taking material from the surface of planets and talking about processes that might, might form those. So you'll be using so experimental methods then to, uh, to address some of these questions? or Right, yeah. So I use a mixture of experimental mm. approaches, so creating mini rocks in laboratories. So I guess I can talk some more about this. But I also uh, do analytical work, so I take natural mm. samples and make various measurements of what their chemistry is. And I also do quite a bit of modelling, so we can use thermodynamic models and we can use empirical models to try and take that data and do something a bit more quantitative with it to, to really be able to um, interpret it rather than just you know, having a quick look. So uh, my favourite approach is kind of combine all of these. So maybe mm. you, you make some careful measurements, you have the chemistry of materials, and then you think, well, what does this chemistry mean? We, we need a, a framework in which to interpret this. So we can do some experiments so that we can constrain these different processes and we can look at the trends we might expect in chemical data that different processes give us to look at these samples. And then we can use that experimental data, feed it into thermodynamic models, and then use that model to really extrapolate and interpolate between the different conditions of the experiments and try and have, have something more universal to work with. So this is my favorite sort of approach. Experiments are the most fun part of it, maybe the most interesting, and maybe the one that people know the least about, although it sounds like, you know, you've had some people on this podcast previously talk about experiments. Yeah, well, so so I guess David talked more about some of the lower end pressures mm -hmm. and stuff, but I guess you've done a lot of work with quite high pressure stuff, which yeah. is quite interesting. So I guess it's quite cool. So you use diamonds to yeah. get high pressures. Yeah, right? so 
So one of the, the research themes that I've been involved in is looking at the formation of the Earth's core and how that's segregated out from the mantle, or also the cores and mantles of other planets. So obviously the pressures and temperatures at which that happened can be extremely high. We actually don't know exactly what the pressures and temperatures are, but, but they're very, very high. And so for, typical, for the kind of experiments that we use to look at igneous systems, we, we don't really reach those extreme temperatures and pressures that we find in deep planetary interiors. So one of the types of experiments that, that I've been involved in that we do they're known as diamond anvil cell experiments. They can be quite challenging to do. So essentially what we do is we take two diamonds, gem quality diamonds, and they have truncated tips. And so we, we wedge a tiny, tiny piece of sample between the tips of those two diamonds. You know, there's an apparatus to hold this thing together, but essentially it's a tiny sample wedged between the tips of those diamonds. And of course, if you apply a pressure to the back of those diamonds, you're translating, you're translating that force down to a very, very tiny area. And then the pressure you get between the diamonds, you can very quickly generate enormous pressures. You don't want to go too high because if you go above about 100 gigapascals, those diamonds pretty much break every time. A very uh, expensive way of yeah. <laughs> getting through research. <laughs> but um, we, we routinely go up to about 80 or 90 gigapascals and okay. the Earth's core mantle boundary is something like 120 to 130 gigapascals. So we're getting we're getting close to those those yeah. conditions. So it's pretty, so in terms of depth, well, I guess that's hundreds of kilometers mm -hmm. deep. I mean, we're talking about the lower mantle, so yeah. we're talking about deeper than 600, yeah. 700 kilometers. Yeah. I mean, in reality, core formation obviously happens sequentially, you know. So we, we start off with very small planets, and as they grow, the pressures at which that metal is segregating out from the silicate mm. and forming that core is getting larger and larger through time. So actually, it's not that low-pressure experiments aren't relevant, but to very large planets to look at yeah. the final stages of core formation, we need to get to these very extreme conditions. Mm. So we, because the diamonds are, are see-through, uh, we can just fire an infrared laser through them, and as long as it's interacting properly with the sample, if the sample's got metal in it, it can heat up extremely easily. So getting to very high temperatures is not difficult. Controlling the temperatures is difficult, mm -hmm. but reaching them, you zap it with a laser, job done. You can reach 5,000 Kelvin in a few seconds <laughs> so if you're not careful. Quite short experiments, then. Is it just a sort of a, a laser pulse? Things it's, melt? It's not quite a laser pulse, but... Um, if we're dealing with liquids, the diffusion rates are so extremely high mm. at those very high yeah. temperatures that you really don't need an experiment to run for very long to yeah. reach chemical equilibrium. So sometimes, you know, 30 seconds, a minute is fine. And actually, if you're dealing with experiments with a liquid metal and a liquid silicate being heated by a laser, um, it's they can be quite difficult to control because these things can move around. And of course, if the metal moves away from the laser spot, it can Hmm. It'll cool down very quickly if it moves into the laser spot. It can flash heat. So actually, if you if you run these experiments for too long, you can run into you can run into a whole load of other difficulties. So we try to keep the experiments quite short. So if you're doing all this on the tip of a diamond, how small are these volumes of experiments oh, you're doing? Oh, they're tiny. I mean, it's quite fun in a way because essentially what we're producing is a tiny, tiny planet between the tip of two diamonds, and that planet is probably about. 10 microns across. I would like to compare this to the width of the human hair, but I don't know how wide a human hair about is. 30, no, about 100 microns. 100 microns. Oh, yeah. fantastic. So okay. actually, our, um, so we're making a tiny planet that is one-tenth of the width of a human hair between the tips of those that's, diamonds. That's incredible, really. It's how do you prepare the, the things to go between the diamonds? They must be um, quite small to start with, right? So the rules would be no caffeine, <laughs> no, <sugar>. <laughs> <laughs> no alcohol don't do it when you're too hungry don't do it when you're too full don't do it when you're stressed don't do it if you've just done exercise so you know there are a small number of windows in the day when your hands are steady enough that you can manipulate these things so okay so there are different ways to prepare it we'll 
we'll squeeze a piece of rhenium metal or sometimes other metals between two diamonds. Why rhenium? Rhenium is very stiff and it's right. very unreactive. Um, we'll squeeze it between the diamonds to make a pit. We'll drill a tiny hole that will hold, that will be the sample chamber. So the, the, the rhenium's kind of, it's supporting the tips of the yeah. diamonds. It's stopping them deform too much. It's stopping mm -hmm. them break and it's holding mm -hmm. everything together. And then it, we have a tiny well in the middle where we can fill it with our sample material. So it's, some people will just do experiments. They'll look at phase relationships. They might put in a powder that's like the mantle and they'll put it in there. And that's not too difficult to prepare. You're just stuffing a, a powder in. These experiments are quite difficult to prepare. Um, sometimes we'll put in a disc of silicate. So it'll be something that's very, very thinly polished. We might polish it to 10 microns thick, uh, cut out tiny circles using a laser, try and pick it up with the tip of a tip of a needle, a very sharp needle, and drop it in the hole. And then I'll drop in a very thin piece of foil, metal foil. I'll try and squeeze that and rip a bit off and kind of get it in. It's, it's quite difficult. You need such steady hands. You have to, oh yeah, and then I'll put the final disc of silicate in. Sometimes we'll put in a chip of ruby because we use ruby to monitor what the pressure is. And sometimes you'll have extra layers on the outside that act as uh, pressure mediums to give more hydrostatic pressure or to help with the temperature distribution. Um, these things are very tiny. You, you load these cells up down a microscope. Uh, and so can you see them with your naked eye? No. Wow, okay. The, t the material on the tips of the diamonds you can't really see with the naked eye. So yeah. we, we load them up down quite powerful microscopes. We're usually doing it by hand. So really you have to understand your body well enough that you know the times of the day, mm. that your hands <laughs> are steady enough that you can actually drop this disc in the well uh, I mean, sometimes you have to try and do it five times. You know, you'll try and load it. You'll make a mistake. You'll stab the needle in. You'll miss it. You kind of clean everything out. Try again. Try again. It it can be quite challenging. On the flip side, the experiment's very quick to do. Mm -hmm. um, then the other challenging part, of course, is that your experiment is so tiny that really doing the heating experiment is only the start. You know, we're interested in the equilibrium chemistry. There's not really a good in situ way to measure this during the experiment. So we have to do the experiment, heat it, quench it. So turn the laser off, everything freezes. The chemistry is frozen into that metal phase and the silicate. Then we have to take those out, somehow cut them open, and somehow measure those tiny, tiny phases and get some fairly accurate measurement of what the chemistry is. Do this at different pressure and temperature conditions and try and constrain how this, how this chemical behavior, how the distribution of different elements will change with pressure and temperature. The chemical measurements are the more challenging part because they're just slightly smaller than the, the kind of things that we're typically skilled at at analyzing in geochemistry. Yeah, I can't remember if we've talked much about SIMS and laser ablation methods on this podcast before, but I guess there would be some even more routine measurements, but mm. I guess they're, they're too big to do They're too these. big. So laser ablation, we might have a spot size somewhere between 30 and 60 microns, maybe bigger, depending on what you're doing. So maybe the metal in these experiments might be five to 10 mm. microns across. Maybe the silicate is just a couple of microns rim around that. So we can't use any techniques that involve firing a la massive laser pit through something. SIMS is too big as well. Nano SIMS is better. So mm. nano SIMS, we don't quite have the same um, sensitivity in terms of looking at very low concentrations, but we do have a much higher spatial resolution. And so nano sims we can use to measure light elements as well. So that's great. So that's one technique that is possible to use. It's still, um, it's not used very routinely for these experiments. I mean, these experiments are not that routinely done. They are difficult. They are mm -hmm. considered difficult. Um, we also use the electron microprobe. But again, we're really looking at the spatial limitations of the electron microprobe. So although we can make microprobe measurements, and people are more familiar with this technique, um, there are some special limitations 
that we don't usually have to think about that we really do have to account for when we're measuring very, very small things by microprobe. Um, we've also tried doing atom probe measurements. Ah, yeah, yes, the atom probe. That's yes. definitely worth talking about because this is a very cool thing. I don't know if you guys are aware of no, what an atom probe is. I've never seen an atom probe. But uh, I guess it's where well, we were talking about this yesterday, actually. It's a relatively new instrument in the, in the world of Earth sciences, but I'm sure you can tell us more about it. Oh, the atom probe <laughs> is a spectacular instrument. It's also a very, very difficult technique to use, but it's one of these sort of high risk, high rewards. If you can get it to work, even if you just have one or two measurements, you really have the opportunity to find out something very interesting. So if you ever have the opportunity or a reason to think maybe atom probe would be good here, I would, I would really urge you to consider it. So the atom probe um, essentially will measure atom by atom. It will measure the identity of individual atoms and it will give you their 3D positions. But in individual isotopes, wow. basically. Yeah. So it's a tiny, it, it, it ultimately measures things using a time of flight mass spec, so it can identify individual isotopes. It has a pretty high, um, what would be the word, uh, of the number of atoms going into it, I think the recovery, so the, the number of atoms that they're actually able to measure is about 50% of them. So <laughs> the samples that you measure are tiny. You would use Atom Probe to look at things on a nanometer scale. So we're using it to look at um, some unusual textures that we find in these diamond anvil cell experiments and we have some strange exolutions textures on the scale of tens to hundreds of nanometers so for the atom probe you would cut your sample into a tiny needle so the tip of that needle would be about 13 nanometers across and the, the length of it that you'll end up analyzing might be 100 nanometers up to a few hundred nanometers if you're lucky so you cut it on something called a focused ion beam so it's like an SEM with an extra beam of gallium ions that you can use to cut things so you make these very tiny needle tips, and then in the atom probe, you ev evaporate the atoms off the tip of that needle, atom by atom, and then it's 2D location when it arrives at the mass spec, as well as the, the, the relative timing of the different atoms arriving there allow you to reconstruct this three-dimensional map. So you have a very, you know, it's not something you can use for routine measurements. It's difficult, it's expensive. It's especially difficult on non-conducting samples. So in the earth sciences, if you're looking at silicate minerals, this is, this is something that's being developed in atom probe technology but it's it's something at the limitation it's much easier to work with metals um and you need a very specific reason to really be looking at that nanometer scale but it's an extremely powerful technique and it makes some very pretty images yeah <laughs> so i seem to remember do, have people done it on zircons to do like really really have, small yeah. lead dating on i think they may have done it on jack hills maybe so, so there was a very high cool. profile paper i'll try and remember the details okay, yeah, of this. i, I think what they did was they looked at the distribution of lead yeah, within the zircon because essentially when people are measuring uranium lead dates on zircons they they consider it like a bulk tech you know they have a, a laser spot size that's mm. fairly large and they say well this is the age we get according to the amount of uranium the amount of lead um or actually the amount of just the amount of lead but when they were looking in a lot of detail they found that the lead was not uniformly distributed yeah. across the zircon it was really clustered and so this, this leads to some questions, you know, how, um, I guess it leads to some questions about the robustness of, of the technique. You know, you're doing something on a larger scale. When you zoom in and look at that fine scale, does it support the interpretations that you've previously been making? I think there's a lot of, there might be a lot of disappointment that comes up when we start looking at things at those scales. We might find that some of the techniques we've previously been using, there might be some additional complications mm. that we haven't quite been thinking about. It would be interesting to see what comes up. I know people have also been doing some 
uh, dating using Bedelliite, I think, by okay. by uh, Atom Probe. Yeah. I have a so feeling this has been done in the UK. Yeah, I can't quite remember. So Bedelliite is another sort of zircon-bearing uh, mm. mineral that's quite often used as a shock indicator, particularly for Martian samples. Um, but so where, where, where have you done your atom probe? Is, it, is, there an instru- is there an atom probe in the UK? Or have you yeah, so I did this in the material science department in the University of Oxford. Oh, okay, right. Uh-huh. I don't think there are very many atom probes in the UK. They're extremely expensive instruments mm. and they take a lot of expertise to run. Uh, but I had a great experience doing this in Oxford. So they are material scientists. They more traditionally work on things like steels mm. and also sort of high-tech materials, things like for you know solar panel type materials. Um, it's often used to look at things like defect structures, maybe trace elements sitting in defects or at grain boundaries, like things on that kind of scale. Um, but they're definite, I think there's definitely a movement at the moment towards using this technique a little bit more often for earth science type applications. And as long as we can you know, be good at measuring non-conductive samples, which has really been the limitation in the past, then this is something that could open up to earth sciences. Yeah, and I guess with all these things, as, as time goes on, people will get more familiar with these methods and it'll become slightly easier to... Mm, it'll still be expensive. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's something... Usually, my most commonly used method is electron probe. And on the electron probe, we can make hundreds and hundreds mm. of measurements in a day. And we often think about sort of statistics and data sets and developing a big data set. It's just a very different approach to obtaining data because we're really just talking about getting a single data point almost, but where there's something important about that spatial distribution and where you can say something... Maybe you can just make a particular measurement that says something more more general about the others. So for me, it's quite a different approach towards obtaining data. Mm. But it's a specialist application, but I'm sure there's more that we can use it for that we just need to be a little bit creative and imaginative about. So there's one last question just before we wrap up that we try and ask uh, all our guests. And that is, are there any other sort of interests outside the field of science? So if you weren't an academic, what else do you think you might be doing? Oh, so when I was occasionally during my PhD thinking about what else could I do, again, because of this kind of negative attitude you hear as a PhD student about the disaster that is an academic career. So I started thinking, well, you know, what's my backup plan? What do I enjoy doing? I would have become a data scientist at Mm -hmm. that point. I didn't used to know very much I was never a computing person. I never was that gifted with computers. I never knew that much about them. But when I was doing my PhD, I really started to do a lot of modeling. I taught myself a bit of coding. Um, I really enjoyed it a lot. It was almost therapeutic. I I quite like the aspect where your code is broken and you try and find, you know, you find what's wrong with it and then you fix it and it Mm. feels really good and you've kind of solved your own problems. I'm quite interested in problem solving. Um, I think in, in the world out there, there is a lot of opportunity in in data science. A lot of companies are struggling to find enough good data scientists to fill their roles. Mm -hmm. It's a field that's especially open to women. Um, You know, we really need more women data scientists and people are looking to recruit them. You just, if you're you're a scientist at the moment, you have the transferable skills potentially that you can develop, develop your coding a bit. There are plenty of courses out there. There are plenty of schemes set up to take people out of academia and place them in data science. I know people who've gone down these routes and it looked really interesting. You know, you work on real, real world problems that are, are super interesting. It's, it's almost like a PhD. You know, you have your problem, you have your data, you can have a think about it, you can decide mm. how to approach that. Uh, I was really quite interested in doing this as a backup career. I mean, the other one is that uh, I used to want to be a ballerina, but I was really, <laughs> really bad at dancing. So <laughs> I guess that was more off the table. Um, <laughs> That's the most extreme career change you've had then. <laughs> 
actually, I've, every step of the way, I've, I've never really thought that much about long-term careers. I've just kind of done whatever I was interested in at the time. You know, finished my undergrad, thought, I'm really enjoying this. I'll go and work in the lab for a bit. Worked in the lab for a bit, thought, I'm really enjoying this. I might as well keep doing it as a PhD. Did a PhD, thought, well, you know, I like what I'm doing. Maybe I should do more science. Did a postdoc, and I was like, yeah, I still like what I'm doing. Maybe I should try and do this forever. <laughs> it's, uh, I don't think you need the level of planning where you have it all mapped out at the beginning. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it can't. Surely, it can't steer you that wrong if you just do what you enjoy. Yeah, that's I'd right. Absolutely, exactly. Wrong. It's exactly the philosophy I subscribe to. You know, just keep going while you're having fun. Exactly. Well, on that note, I'll say thank you very much, and thank hopefully, you. you'll come back next year when you talk about some more of your Martian and uh, uh, lunar results. Okay, and, that'd uh, be great. Yeah, I'd love yeah. to. In the meantime, thank you very much, and we'll see you all next week. Thank you.